Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It is Tuesday, the fourth of April, twenty twenty-three. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thank you so much for including me in your day. We are going to um, jump right into the Word of God. Where in the Word are you today? It's an essential question to be asking every single day. Where in the Word are you? Let's um, establish ourselves in the Word of God in order that we might be fully equipped for every good work that God has prepared in advance for us to do today as His people in the world that He so loves. So John chapter 12 Verses 23 to 25, Jesus uh, replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So this is uh, certainly a passion prediction of Jesus. He is uh, clearly headed here to the cross, um, which during this Holy Week makes this a very appropriate passage of Scripture to reflect upon. I want you just to consider what he says here. The hour has come. My time has come, Jesus is saying. Jesus had uh, an absolute sense of divine timeline unfolding in and through his earthly life. He knew why he had come from heaven to earth. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he would go from the cross to the grave. He knew he would then go from the grave um, to experience resurrection and then ultimately ascend and be seated at the right hand again of the Father, um, the the seat he has enjoyed um, for all eternity, all eternity past and all eternity present and all eternity to come. Jesus belongs at the right hand of the Father. But for a portion of history, he left that glory in order that he could condescend to human reality and take on human flesh. We call that the incarnation, in order that he could be not only fully God, but also fully man, in order that he could fully pay for the debt of sin that we owe to God. Um. And Jesus died as a substitute in our stead. And this is the week that we walk with him into the reality of the cross. So for Jesus to finally arrive at the point where he says, my time has come, the hour has come. I think it's important for us to reflect on the number of times that Jesus noted along the way that it wasn't yet his time. Remember back in John chapter 2? I think that's the first time that we hear Jesus say, hey, my, uh, my hour is not yet come. It's not, not yet my time. That's Jesus responding to his own mother um, in her request that he would do something about the embarrassing shortage of wine at the friend's wedding in Cana. Well, we know how Jesus 
changed that reality and multiplied the joy of uh, of that that couple and um, took away their shame and restored them to the joy of um, of the marriage festival. It was the first of the signs through which people would come to see and understand the reality of who Jesus really was, that they would see the Father whom Jesus had come to make known. But it is in John chapter 2 when Jesus says, you know, my hour is not yet come. He says it again um, uh, in John chapter 7. Every time Jesus says my hour is not yet come, he's indicating that he's working on a divine schedule. Um, that he's managing the pace at which people are going to be confronted with the reality of who he really is. In John 7, we hear him say to his disciples, my time has not yet come. But then uh, he says to them, you go on up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And yet by the end of chapter 7 um, in the Gospel of John, they were seeking to arrest him, but they couldn't lay a hand on him because why? Well, his time had not yet come. The gospel narrative uh, pivots at this point, and Jesus acknowledges that his time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows he's going to die at the hands of sinful men, that those men and every other person might know God, even as they are fully known by God, that they might really live, that we might really live no longer subject to the evil which reigns in this world, but subject to the king, and that we might become the ambassadors of his kingdom here and forevermore. John notes one more time, again in chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' time comes because Jesus loves us. So as uh, Jesus approaches the cross this week, as Jesus approaches his time, the fullness of time, it is for us that the kernel of wheat will fall to the ground and die, that life might abound in us and we might become a harvest of righteousness to the glory of God. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. When they crucified my Lord Were you there When they crucified my Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is joining us again this morning from Cedarville University. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Carmen. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. And you? Uh, you know, I'm doing well. Getting ready good. for a Easter break this weekend and yeah, having, having yeah. a good week. Good. So um, this article about Raphael Warnock um, caught my attention. He is both a pastor and he <clears throat> is a sitting senator um, and... So, you know, he's uh, he's standing in the U.S. Capitol building, um, making speeches at a hearing related to, you know, natural resources and the plight of people who own uh, forest land um, 
and and then he's going to turn and be home this week preaching Holy Week sermons from the pulpit of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. Just talk with us about, um, I don't know, what you see here and um, what we might take away from it. There's a lot. There's a lot here, I think, uh, that's worth discussing. Uh, I think the first thing is just real practical. Um, how do you hold down what seem to be two full-time jobs? Um you know, being a pastor at a place like Ebenezer Baptist has to be a full-time responsibilities. And even if it's just preaching, I don't want to minimize preaching, but preaching is uh, the great deal of preparation that goes into preaching well uh, on a Sunday service. It isn't just showing up and reading some notes um, for Sunday. So, and then to do that along with an extraordinarily busy uh, job in the Senate, is just really remarkable. You know, as he says in the story that his life is very scheduled. And it's really only possible because he has um, strong staff members around him. I, I that must must be true, but it is a stunning thing. Now, I should say one of the reasons that is feasible is that the Senate and Congress in general functions on a Tuesday through Thursday schedule. So most of their work is Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday in D.C., and that does give them flexibility to leave and go back home uh, over the weekends. But it's still uh, kind of shocking. But I think for practical purpose, I mean, I think for sort of theoretical purposes, what's interesting is the blending of church and state just symbolically in a person like this. Uh, and the article talks about that. And he defends himself and says, you know, I really don't see this as a problem. Um, puts himself in a long line of other people who are religiously motivated. Uh, but, you know, maybe it's just my time as a, a long time as a conservative Christian. Uh, this feels like a little bit of a double standard. Uh, you can imagine if it were a white Southern Baptist evangelical pastor going back every weekend to preach, there'd probably be a lot more discussion over church state issues than there is with someone like uh, Raphael Warnock. Yeah, he's also the dad of little kids, and he yep. talks about um, you know that as well. Um, he talks about having a ministry of presence. He talks about his life being, uh, I mean, a sermon. Um, and he talks about his colleagues, you know, frequently, frequently saying to him, hey, Rev, pray for me. Um, I like it. I, um, I, I like it. And as you say, um, you know, if, if he were, uh, if, if he's not on your side of the proverbial aisle, um, right. and if he doesn't look like your pastor, then I want you to think about uh, what if he did look more like your pastor and was on your side of the aisle and how you might feel about it, right? Because I think that those are things that we ought to be thinking about. Um, he says, people know I'm a Christian. Um, and I think that that speaks volumes today. Like for people to know who you are and where you stand and why you stand there, like I'm all for that. So I, I wanted to lift this up and celebrate it. I like how um, easily he moves between the pulpit and the political sphere. Um, and I think that uh, it's helpful um, to have a person like Raphael Warnock, even if there are many times I disagree with the particular policies that he's voting for. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, I think it's a good example, a good model to the rest of our country, especially when religion can be divisive uh, along with politics. And it certainly fits within the long stream of African-American political activism. Uh, you know, mm. he's literally embodying the pulpit that um, that Martin Luther King Jr. made famous. And so in that sense, it, it really does, it isn't all that unusual uh, whatsoever. And I appreciate the fact that he makes it clear 
that his political points of view really flow from his religion. He's not trying to separate those things. He has strong commitments. You know, he says, I believe all people are created in God's image. And therefore that's going to affect the way that I view policies. And I, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. So I think, um, I think it's a, it's a very healthy perspective, at least to that, to that degree. Yes. And for those of you who are now going to be screaming on the text line that he's not pro-life. Um, yeah, right. I get it. I think there right. are places where he does not, um, apply right. the scriptures or the mind of Christ appropriately, uh, on the matters of the day. All right. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith in just a moment. We're actually going to look back in time. We'll have a little history lesson here. Do you remember anything about 1953? Like, or even that period of time? What do you know about the Cold War? What, what were, people saying in the midst of the Cold War about the chance for peace. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Sing to Jesus, Lord of our shame, Lord of our sinful hearts. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Mark, um, back in 1953, on April the 16th, um, President Eisenhower broadcast a speech uh, called the chance for peace. Can you read us in on that? What what was going on? What was the what were what did the times feel like? Um, and what might we learn from this particular speech? So yeah, this is <clears throat> this is in uh, April sixteenth, nineteen fifty three. As you said, this is the very beginning of Eisenhower's presidency. Uh, he'd just been elected in the fall of nineteen fifty two. And of course, Dwight Eisenhower um, burst upon the international scene as a man of war, uh, supreme allied commander of all uh, European forces and that theater of operations, um, planner of the D-Day invasion. Uh, This is a man who had an incredible resume of war fighting. And as president, I think interestingly, he starts off his presidency uh, by arguing for the possibilities of peace. And he's doing this at a very fraught moment in our history. Uh, The Cold War is becoming an existential crisis by this point. Uh, Both sides have atomic weapons. There's a real possibility of uh, destroying one another. And Eisenhower makes this very, uh, I think, heartfelt plea to the international community uh, that the Soviet Union and the United States need to consider ways that they can work together toward peace as opposed to this consistent buildup of defense. And he sets the stage here for this, for this speech by just putting forward some hope that uh, maybe we have some hope that we can pursue peace because the alternatives are just too horrific to consider. So 1953 is also the year that um, Eisenhower like becomes officially a Presbyterian having, 
departed from his Mennonite uh, roots. Um, I think that, you know, the Mennonites have this pacifist tradition and they found him to be at odds with, um, I think, with their sense of peace um, and the way that it should be pursued. Um, He was known to be a man of prayer and deep faith and um, ardent religious practice. Um, And I think that you hear in this speech when he's doing the math, when he's like doing the math of um, uh, how many, you know, how many houses it it costs, like what's the cost of building like one single destroyer, he says, um, we could have housed more than 8,000 people. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. There is an opportunity cost, like, right? Something is not going to be built, infrastructure or housing or food. So, uh, you know, like something's not going to happen if we continue to invest so heavily in war. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the way that he took that math argument and spun it into a cultural argument as well. You know, he says... What are we investing in in terms of our human resources? We're bending our scientists and we're bending our businesses and our educators uh, toward national defense because the needs are so desperate. But what are we losing there? You know, we're cultivating this industry to defend ourselves. uh, But in the process, we're spending this human potential that could be going in many, many different directions, uh, all aimed at uh, weaponry and it's a it's a sobering it's a sobering speech, I believe, um, and I think in some ways could only be credibly given by a man like Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Right? No, absolutely. Um, hey, uh, what are some other things that you're paying attention to today? I mean, obviously, we have the big headline news of the former president yeah. being um, uh, being arraigned today in Manhattan. We have a growing number of people entering the presidential race um, for the 2024 cycle, but the sitting president may not announce his uh, bid for re-election until at least the fall. Um, We've got a Wall Street Journal reporter who has been arrested and detained in Russia. I mean, we've got all kinds of stuff going on. What are you paying attention to these days? Uh, I think over the weekend, um, Asa Hutchinson's declaration for the Republican nomination uh, was interesting to me. Um, yeah, I'm, I cut my teeth as a scholar on Southern politics. And so I wrote my dissertation on, uh, the religious right and, um, Southern politics and the the evolution of those two things together. And Hutchinson was a figure in that movement. I mean, this is a guy who uh, went to Bob Jones university, got a bachelor's in accounting there, um, sort of a card carrying member of the religious right. If you think of it in that sense, and became a potent politician in Arkansas, two-term governor there, and has been sort of an establishment figure. I mean, I think he's sort of moved away from the religious right in some ways, uh, has grown into being a moderate establishment Republican figure, been very critical of President Trump throughout Trump's presidency, and is now declaring opposition to Trump, Um, even to the point of saying he thinks Trump should drop out of the race because he's just handicapped and shouldn't be considered a potential nominee. So I don't have any illusion that Hutchinson's going to make a lot of waves or that he's going to win the nomination at all. Uh, and I'm sure he knows that as well. But uh, I think it's an interesting decision. And this is a guy who'd have been a very credible uh, candidate, I think, you know, just 10 to 20 years ago. 
uh, but now is going to have, I think, a hard time getting attention. But still, I think worth noting, and uh, there is still a part of the Republican Party that's going to oppose President Trump, uh, even nationally. Mm. He does have the benefit of having an interesting name. Like, no question. I'm just saying that, like, his name's not like Bob. It's like Asa. Like, that's kind of a, you know, well, I can remember that. I could, you know, I could think about that. Um, hey, mentioning uh, or speaking of Bob Jones, um, President Steve Pettit has resigned um, in a uh, what just sounds like just a terrible, awful conflict with the um, with the chairman of the board. It's been like a well, it's been quite a brouhaha. So there you go. If you weren't up to speed on that as a as a person um, interested in politics and the intersection of higher ed and religion. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a steamy hot mess you might want to check into. Yeah, I need to dive into that. I, I was told about yeah. it. I need to look into mm-hmm. what's going on. But um, yeah. I always hate to hear of this kind of strife. At no, I know it's a it's remarkable. like a ter- terrible story, but yeah. also like you you read it and you're like, OK, seriously, like this is actually still going on today. Like people are behaving like this. Anyway, there you go. People are behaving badly in the story. I'll just go ahead and tell you that in advance. All right. Um, hey, as always, thank you so much. It's a delight to to chat with you. Blessed Holy Week and Happy Easter. Same to you and your listeners, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise. Hey, let's take a moment to go upwards with Max Lucado. All right, so if you were to Google, like, the best Easter books for children, none of them would actually be about Easter. Uh, They'd be about um, llamas and bunnies and even Pete the Cat, but they wouldn't be about the cross of Jesus. Uh, There's the um, Berenstein Bears and the Happy Easter Mouse and the How to Catch an Easter Bunny. There's the Easter Egg and the Llama Llama Easter, and there's Pete the Cat's Big Easter Adventure, um, but no mention of Jesus. So I thought, you know what? Let's uh, let's get a children's book in front of us um, and remind ourselves how to tell the story um, of what happens, and let's learn how to tell it to kids um, in a way that um, is honest to God and that they enjoy. So Dan Dewitt's going to join us. He's going to actually read to us uh, his book. The Friend Who Forgives, which is an Easter story um, and suitable for children. That's up next. Oh, we're also going to talk about the devil's work because, you know, that's a part of the conversation, too. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dan DeWitt's joining us now. You can find what we're talking about at theolatte.com. Dan, it's not Friday, but welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. I am glad to join you any day of the week. We're, we're thrilled. We're thrilled to have you here with us. Um, and I do want to have you read to us in a few minutes, um, The Friend Who Forgives. But I want to start with um, The Devil's Work. Um, in part because I don't, I don't have anything that I've ever done that 2.3 million people have uh, taken the time to read or watch, and yeah. um, 
that's the number of folks that have clicked on this particular blog post at theolatte.com. So tell us about the devil's work. Yeah, so actually the 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 count is how many people watched the video since Joyner Lucas, who's a um an artist, released it just three weeks ago. And so his his videos, he's a spoken word poet, he's a rapper. I don't know how many people listening in this morning are rap fans, but I guarantee you you have someone you're related to, <laughs> someone you know and care about, who's probably heard of Joyner Lucas. And so he had written a song in 2018 called I'm Not Racist. And it immediately went viral. And then a very well-known um, secular artist, Eminem, had him on his album. And that kind of launched Joyner Lucas onto this international stage. And so in the midst of all that, if you know of any of those names that I've mentioned, you're probably not expecting for his songs to have theological content. And so I want to offer a disclaimer. Sometimes I'll talk about a video or lyrics and I'll embed the video into the post. I intentionally didn't do that here because there is some explicit language. But what I appreciate about his song is that it, in its own way, kind of parallels the Psalms. It's this really deep lament about people who've passed away, people who've been taken from him. And in the midst of all that, you could see this artist, Joyner Lucas, struggling to trust God. So some of his lyrics, I'll, I'll just read them. He writes, drowning in my tears, trying to pray for something. Wonder why you give life, for, why you give us life for you to take it from us. Wonder why you give us family, then erase them from us. Maybe hopefully you can have a conversation with us. And he's speaking to God here. Maybe I'm try just trying tripping because I need a hug. The hood can't find jobs. Now we need a plug. Everybody and their mama trying to be a thug. I don't go to church because I'm afraid of being judged. He goes on to say, and I think this is pretty powerful. He asks God for guidance. He says, begging for your guidance on this ghetto earth, frustrated, trying to understand how heaven works. I'm just hoping you could pull a couple strings or redo a couple things, or maybe we could get a second turn. And he goes on to say all these things. He says, but putting the blame on you, on God, that'll never work. I know this ain't your fault. It's the devil's work. And in reading those lyrics of, of this video that has gone viral, I was just reminded that sometimes we need to take these opportunities as people are wrestling with, you know, living in a messed up world to point them to the reality that Christianity offers in the midst of this mess. And so I'll read just a couple more lines then, Carmen, happy for you to, to chime in. I think this is an important song and it's resonating with a lot of people and it's a great opportunity for us to point to the reality of the resurrection. So the song ends with, I don't mean to question you. I'm just confused. I don't know what else to do. I've been patient and it stinks waiting. Took my man from me. That forever hurts. But putting the blame on you, that'd never work. I know this ain't your fault. It's the devil's work. So I think, um, well, first of all, thank you. Right. Thank you for bringing this forward. Thank because, you know, honestly, I'm not listening to rap. Um, it's not a genre of music I particularly understand. It doesn't resonate with me. Mm. However, I recognize it's huge. Um, and a lot of people are listening. I'm glad there are people who are listening to rap who are hearing this song and these lyrics um, and this worldview. Um and the content of it is like excellent. 
Can you understand, Dan, how for some Christians it's it's hard to get over the bridge of um, the challenge of the genre, um, even even to get to the place where I could acknowledge that God's really working in this person and through this person in this medium? Absolutely. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who've not grown up around particular musical styles, like say, if you know, for me, I didn't grow up around heavy metal. So when I'm around heavy metal, I'm like, that's not necessarily my jam. Now, Paul can appreciate it a lot more than I can. Um, but I would say if you were to drive by, maybe this would be a helpful analogy. If you were to drive by a coffee shop and your son or daughter hangs out there all the time or a grandchild, if you're a grandparent, and it's just loaded with people and you see them there every time you drive by but you just don't like coffee. So you don't want to go in, right? Like, um, but the conversations are happening in there and that's where your, your child or grandchild's being influenced. Um, I'm not saying that you necessarily have to take up residence at the coffee shop, but it may be helpful for you to know, like, what are the topics they're talking about in there? Um, what are some ways that I could use things that are being discussed there as an inroad into a meaningful conversation with someone I love? And I think that that's where for someone who really says, you know, I don't even want care to hear about lyrics from a rap song or something like that. I wouldn't say go out and buy an album or get on YouTube and listen to all the music, but you're driving by the coffee shop and that's where the conversations are happening. It's helpful for you to at least know what's going on. And for me, um, I really appreciate when an artist will be honest to the point of even saying, you know, I kind of don't want to believe in God, but deep down I do. And this world's so hard and so difficult and there's so much loss and I'm trying to make sense of it. I mean, one of the lines in the song, he says, Father, forgive me. I'm staring at this Bible as I keep glancing. Dear Lord, I got questions and I need answers. Well, that's all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, and Mm -hmm. so. The the distraction of the time in which we live. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I was very thankful for these lyrics. It's, it's gone viral. He, he did a devil's work one. And I think it's like over 150 million views on that video. So this is the coffee shop where a lot of conversations are happening. And thank God that these kind of laments and longings are satisfied in an empty tomb. And so Easter is the message to making sense of this kind of heartache and angst. Um. All right. So what about KB Burgess? Do you know him? Do you like his I- stuff? I do. I love KB. And um, in fact, we're having him on campus here in um, here in a couple of weeks. And I would imagine you might have him on the show with his new book. Is that right? Yeah, he's coming on on Friday. Um, oh. And so I thought I would lift that up because, you know, I'll just confess to you that prior to this, I wasn't familiar with KB Burgess. I didn't know anything about him or or i mean but talk about a guy who's gripped by jesus and seeking to platform the lord and yet doing so again in a in a music style in a genre that i i don't it's not one that i appreciate and so i i get that god has creatives um across i mean across the board in terms of um, where he has his people. And I love that. And I want to celebrate that. Um, even, you know, even if it's something, maybe especially if it's something that I don't really understand and certainly couldn't do myself, right? Um, I I love that God has his people everywhere, um, bringing him glory and drawing, um, drawing people unto him, drawing attention to himself, getting himself glory. Like, I love that. 
you know, absolutely. And there, KB is just the real deal. He is, yeah. he, he's a legit, sincere um, guy. And I think, you know, when Paul in Athens quotes the poets, um, that the Christian rappers are a lot, in a lot of ways, the modern day poets in the world. And um, a Rolling Stones released a study a few years ago, I believe it was Rolling Stones, that rap has now become the, the most popular genre, musical genre in the world. And so it is the coffee shop where the conversations are happening. And when you can latch onto a lyric and show how it's actually pointing beyond the immediate context, pointing to God, I think that's always a helpful thing. And thank thank God for people like KB who are able to use this genre for God's glory. Yeah, somebody else texting in, hey, let's not forget Lecrae. He's so valuable. He's asking really hard questions and pressing for the answers. Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of... um, Yeah, there's a number of uh, of people operating. And I mean, I guess I think of Jackie Hill Perry. And I think, you know, the way sometimes that she invokes the spoken word in a way that sure does sound it. it but it resonates more like I can hear her more easily. Um, mm-hmm. So that's uh, there's like these bridge people out there. <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, can help those of us who this is not our um, you know, this isn't the 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 language or the musical genre um in which we were raised or with which we necessarily resonate but there there are these bridge people kb is one of them i think jackie hill perry is one of them sometimes lecrae is one although um he would basically i think say to me it's just time for you to stop asking for people to explain things and just get over here like he would be yeah he's probably grown weary of my um my need to have things explained. All right. The Devil's Work is the piece um, where you can read what Dan DeWitt has written on this particular topic. It's posted right now at theolatte.com. When we come back, Dan's going to read to us his children's Easter book, The Friend Who Forgives. So if you've been looking for a book to read to your kids this Easter, here it is. And Dan's going to read it to us today as the children of God. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up, they come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? All right, Dan, now I have to ask you, um, and this might be evidence that I am 
living in a different century. Shaylin. Shylin. Shylin. Yeah. Okay, so Lainey uh, texting in says, hey, also, Shylin, Christian yes. rap, such a blessing. There you go. Shylin's so, yes. awesome. Giving- and I have to give a shout out to Flame, who's a dear friend of mine. He's another Flame? Yep. Okay, maybe you just need to make me a list. I'll make you a list. Right. Flame, Flame is, was nominated for a Grammy while he was a student at Boyce College in my class, and I had no idea who he was. And then I'm like, wait, <laughs> somebody in my class better. was nominated for a Grammy? <laughs> <laughs> wait, somebody in my class is a rapper? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. All these things, all these things. Um, so uh, you wrote a children's book. Well, you've written several children's books. Um, or books for children, or books for those of us who are adults to read to children. Um, this yeah. is one of those. It is um, one that is suitable for this particular season. Um, and it's in the Tales That Tell the Truth series. The book is The Friend Who Forgives. Would you read it to us? I would love to read it. So without further ado, a long time ago, there was a man named Peter who was best friends with Jesus. Peter was a fisherman. He was strong and brave, but he often said the wrong thing. Do you ever talk before you think? That's what Peter did again and again and again. Peter loved fish. In fact, one day he and Jesus had fish for breakfast. Fish for breakfast? That's weird. But we'll save that part of the story until the end. On the day when Jesus first called Peter to follow him, can you guess what Peter was doing? That's right. Peter was fishing. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men, Jesus told him. Can you imagine that? Peter fishing for men? Jesus explained that just as Peter liked to search for fish, Jesus had come to search for people who needed forgiveness. Peter loved being friends with Jesus. He saw Jesus do lots of amazing things. One time, Peter's mother-in-law was sick. Jesus healed her. Another time, Peter was about to drown in a storm. Jesus saved him. Slowly, Peter realized that Jesus was more than a friend. He was God. He would never let Peter down. But sometimes Peter let Jesus down, like the time Jesus explained to his friends that he had to die on the cross, but that he would come back to life to offer forgiveness. All of you will run away. You're going to say you're not my friends, Jesus said. Peter spoke up right away. He did that a lot. I will never do that, Peter said. But Jesus told him, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will say three times that you're not my friend. I would never do that. Jesus is my best friend, Peter thought. When soldiers came to take Jesus to the cross, Peter pulled out his sword to stop them. Put your sword away, Peter, Jesus said. My father says this must happen. Jesus let the soldiers take him to a courtyard to stand trial. Peter followed from far away. Aren't you one of Jesus's friends? A young girl asked as she opened a gate for Peter to enter the courtyard. What do you think Peter said? No, I don't know Jesus. It was a cold night, so Peter walked over to a fire where some people were warming themselves. Aren't you one of Jesus's friends? Someone asked Peter. What do you think Peter said? No, I don't know Jesus. Then someone else stepped forward and looked closely at Peter. Yes, you are one of Jesus's friends, aren't you? He said. What do you think Peter said? No, I don't know Jesus. Right then, at that very moment, a rooster crowed. Jesus turned around and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said, 
before the rooster crows, you will say three times, you are not my friend. Peter was so sad. He knew he had failed Jesus again and again and again. He didn't just need to find other people who needed forgiving. He needed forgiving too. Peter felt terrible. He ran out of the courtyard and he cried and cried and cried. Peter had let his best friend down and now it was too late because the soldiers had taken Jesus away to be killed. But Peter didn't stay sad because Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later was the first Easter Sunday when Jesus came back to life to offer people forgiveness. But would he forgive Peter for failing so badly? One day, Jesus went looking for Peter. Where do you think Jesus found him? That's right. Peter and his friends were fishing. Jesus called to them from the beach. Peter jumped out of the boat into the water and rushed to the beach to see Jesus. And this is where Jesus and Peter had fish for breakfast. Fish for breakfast. That's weird. Peter was so happy to see Jesus alive. But would Jesus forgive him? Peter wasn't sure. Maybe Jesus wouldn't want to talk to him. Maybe Jesus wouldn't want to be friends with him. But yes, Jesus did want to talk to Peter. And yes, Jesus did want to forgive Peter. Wow. And since Peter had said he didn't know Jesus three times, Jesus gave Peter the chance to say three times, I love you, Jesus. And that's how Peter became a forgiven fisher of men. I love it. I think we should have fish for breakfast on Easter. (laughs) I like that too. And I think we should ask our kids the questions that you ask. And I think maybe we should just ask ourselves and ask one another the questions that, um, that you ask. Like, I mean, do I talk before I think? Oh, yes. So many times. Um, have I messed up and have I let Jesus down? Oh, yes. So many times. Um, I, I, I like that you ask and, and then obviously in our conversation here, you just went on to read. But when I'm reading this with my grandchildren, I stop and I ask the real question when it comes up, what do you think Peter said? Because it's impossible for my little Evelyn to imagine that somebody who got to be real friends with really with, with real Jesus mm-hmm. could have ever denied knowing him. Like, it's just so hard for her to believe that Peter, who who knew Jesus so well, could have denied even knowing him. Um, and so there is this let them answer part. Mm -hmm. Um, that I really appreciate about this particular book. Um, Dan, when you think about The Friend Who Forgives, this this book that you wrote for us to read to and with our our children at this time of year, you know, you do bring forward Peter's denials. You bring Mm -hmm. forward how Jesus seeks Peter out and forgave him after the resurrection. Um, there, There is this passage of time, and there is this reality of the cross in between those two things. Mm-hmm. I realize that that is left out of the content of the story for a reason. I mean, because mm-hmm. like, right, we're reading this to little kids. Um, but you do deal with the death of Jesus. You acknowledge mm-hmm. that he died and you acknowledge that God raised him from the dead. Um, 
maybe just take us there now in terms of the way you have talked with your children about mm. what happens during this week? Yeah, I, I preached in chapel at Southwest Baptist University yesterday where I'm a professor and was talking about Peter and I actually read the book with them. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing that no matter what age range, there's something about a children's book that we all kind of, you know, tune back in um, and listen, listen up to. And one of the things I pointed out in John's gospel is John mentions that as Peter enters the courtyard at first, he couldn't get in. And so there was another disciple um, who knew the high priest who was able to go and get the, the girl in the courtyard to let Peter in. And the obvious question, if you're reading that passage carefully, is who's that other disciple? And most people historically have thought it's the apostle John, but John always refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loves. Um, so who is that disciple? And I read an article recently that made a compelling case for what disciple do we know had access to the chief priests? Well, Judas. Um, and so the article makes the case for that it's more likely it was Judas than anyone else, which kind of changes the scene. You have now Judas and Peter standing in the courtyard where Peter's denying Jesus. Um, so I shared with the students, you know, what's the big difference between Peter and Judas? In that moment, they're both absolute failures. The big difference is Peter lived long enough to see the resurrected Jesus. Mm. And so the darkness of the cross is something we, we, we have to deal with. And in the book, I, you know, just reference it. But with my kids to talk about how Jesus actually died and actually suffered pain and to understand that as the proper backdrop for the resurrection is really important. And that's why even that the lyrics of that rap song are helpful for us to wrestle with the pain of the curse of sin and to think about that Jesus became a curse for us, um, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And against that dark backdrop, the, the bright light of Easter shines all the more magnificently. All right. Uh, my list of uh, Christian hip hop artists is growing. I now have a recommendation for Bizzle on the text line. So uh, thank you to each and every one of you. Oh, and um, not Clyde. Not Clyde, maybe? I, I I'm going to have to look that one up. Canadian, it familiar. Canadian youth pastor who is also a rapper. There you go. Mm -hmm. nice. I'm going to check them all out. Yeah. Dan, as always, thank you so much. Um, blessed Easter. Happy whole. Or let's do it this way. Let's do blessed Holy Week. Happy Easter. Let's do that. Same to you, Carmen. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right. We are in the midst of Holy Week, and we are walking with Jesus um, to the reality of the cross and what he accomplishes there for us. So if you've not done so already, please go to MyFaithRadio.com and join us in reading through the Bible together during this Holy Week. We'd love for you to join us. It's not too late. Um, it's, in fact, it's just the right time. As Jesus says, um, right? My time has come. The hour has come. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next this morning. Thank you so much for including me in your day. Lots of resources for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, 
Click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.